Welcome to the Commons Cast. We're glad to have you here. We hope you find something meaningful in our teaching this week. Head to commons.church for more information. Welcome to Commons today. Uh, my name is Jeremy, for those of us who haven't met before, and I get to help out around Commons, help lead our team here, but I do most of that out of our Kensington Parish on the other side of town, and so it has been great to be here in Inglewood for the past three weeks with you guys. Um, I'll be back in the summer a couple times, but I just want to say this from all of us at Commons, we love this parish better than the other one. It's fine. Don't tell them that, but it's true. Now, pandering aside, Uh, We are about to wrap up a sort of mini-series here called Wealth. And next week, Scott will be back to start a three-week series he's teaching called Habit. And after that, Bobby will be in for three weeks to talk about change. And we thought that during this stretch through to the summer, it would be kind of fun to give each of our three main teaching voices a chance to develop their own little series, come and speak here. And so hopefully this first one has been helpful for you as we've talked about this. And by the way, all of our teaching, all of our series are laid out at the start of the year in a journal. And if you don't have a journal, then by all means, pick one up from the Connection Center at the back of the room. They are free, and they will give you a lot of information about commons as a community, uh, but also how our teaching works and everything that you can prepare for throughout the year. And we are actually hard at work right now on developing our next journal, which will be available in September. We had a big meeting this week uh, working on the plans and I'm really excited for how that's coming together already. And that said, this is our last conversation about wealth. And a big part of what I wanted to do with this series was to begin to stretch the conversation out from our wallets and our bank accounts to include all of the vast uncelebrated wealth that all of us have at our disposal. So money, yes, sure, but also resources and creativity and passion and ideas and warmth and concern for each other, all of these many ways that we have to affect the world and to help create a more just expression of God's kingdom in our midst. And all of that is part of wealth because as we said at the start of this conversation two weeks ago, wealth is not simply the freedom to get what you want. It's really about the freedom from being driven by want in the first place. And the person with limitless resources matched with limitless consumptive desire is really no farther ahead than any of us. They just have a bigger house to be frustrated in. And this is why the biblical imagination of wealth and wisdom are so deeply linked to each other. Not because the wise are automatically wealthy, but because without wisdom, wealth becomes meaningless. And so two weeks ago, we talked about the promise of the Ten Commandments, and that perhaps what God is offering to us is not just a set of rules, but a way of life that leads to freedom from wanting what we don't have. And then last week, we talked about the relationship between generosity and justice, that wise wealth calls us to notice the story behind the story and to recognize that fair is often shaped by our perception far more than we realize. Uh, We looked at a parable of Jesus that I think really challenges a lot of our assumptions. 
He tells a story about a landowner who hires people early in the morning to work in his vineyard, and then again at nine and noon and three and even 5 p.m., but at the end of the day, everybody gets paid a full wage. And what's fascinating about this story is that it can work in a number of different ways on a number of different levels. And I think our English translations often lead us to assume that the story is about workers that are progressively lazy. The English will often call them idle, which subtly gives this connotation that they are the problem in the story. And that's actually a good story too. God is gracious and giving and generous and caring even despite our flaws and I love that story because I need that story. God is gracious to me and it's not dependent on my industriousness. But at the same time, as we talked about last week, the Greek language of the story doesn't necessarily have those same connotations. In fact, instead of the focus being on the laziness of these workers who were there at the end of the day, I would argue that part of the focus on the story is the lack of opportunity that's given to them. And that despite the lack of opportunity and the decreasing chance that they're going to find work, they actually stand put waiting for a chance even as the day ticks by and the prospect of being hired slowly fades. And if that's the case, then maybe this isn't just a story about unwarranted generosity, maybe it's about generosity that rebalances the playing field. Wealth that provides opportunity where there is none, generosity that invades injustice to ensure that everyone has the chances we might take for granted. See, I think this parable is about the kingdom of God, but I think it's also about work and dignity and opportunity. It's about an imagination of wealth that extends our story to include the stories and the backstories of those who are near us. And sometimes that's a story that I need just as deeply as I do the one about grace. And the truth is, this is the brilliance of Jesus' teaching that sometimes I need this story in both ways at the same time and it's spirit that brings me back to it in that moment. Now today, uh, we wanna take these conversations about the experience of wealth and wisdom and including our story to expand, to include the stories around us. And we wanna talk about the pursuit of happiness. But first, let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for bringing us safely to this day. We stand here some 2,000 years removed from the days in which your son walked this earth. And yet we come to learn from the wisdom and the insight you taught. To wrestle with the ideas and concepts you shared, but more than that, Lord, we come to learn what it means to walk alongside you. Not simply to glean tips from your teaching and life hacks from your lips, but instead to know what it could mean to be caught up in the profound experience of a good life. We search for our happiness today, not in techniques and shortcuts, but in relationship to you. And so we acknowledge our desire to be happy. But more than that, we want to express our want to want to know you. And so help us today to think clearly and critically about our wealth and our resources and our happiness. Help us to separate the ideals and the agendas that culture props up in front of us 
Help us to set aside the pursuit of ecstatic moments and exchange them for the long sustained journey of contentment. We ask that you might help us by granting us deep joy as we succeed and we fail and we fall and we get back up because we trust that you are with us as we do and this is what makes us happy. In the strong name of the risen Christ we pray, amen. Okay, today we're gonna stick with Jesus, uh, but we're gonna move our focus to the Sermon on the Mount, sort of his first major public address. And we're gonna explore some of the advice that he gives us for where to ground our happiness. But the plan today is to cover playing the game, defining happiness, good eyes, and the good life. But first, a quick story here. I'm sure most of you have used Kijiji at some point in your life. Well, I had a few things to sell this week and I was reminded of just how incredible slash infuriating Kijiji can really be because as I've determined this week, Kijiji people are vicious. I posted a few items at night this week before I went to bed and in the morning I woke up to a mountain of messages to reply to. Now maybe you have gone pro and you're gonna tell me that my Kijiji strategy is all wrong and that's the problem here, which obviously is completely true, but my thought was to look and see what other similar items were selling for, to price my listings slightly cheaper than that in the hopes of an easy, quick, simple sell, get in and out, get my money, get the job done and move on. That did not happen because as I said, Kijiji people are vicious. Uh, Here's my three favorite interactions from this week. One, is the item available? Yes, it is, good. I'll give you half of what you want and I'll need you to deliver it to me. Also, I live in Mackenzie Town. No, I'm not doing that, that's crazy. Two, is the item available? I'm sorry, the item is spoken for. Fine, I'll give you $20 more and I'll be there in five minutes. Actually, I'm outside your house right now. What is that? No. Three, is the item available? I'm sorry, the item is sold. What about that other thing that I can see in the blurry background of your photo? I'll take that. Also, can you deliver it to me? No, I'm not selling that. I'm just selling the thing in the picture. Now, I tell this story because I posted that story online and about half of the responses were people empathizing with my frustration. The other half were people telling me that the problem is I'm not playing the game properly and this is actually the best part of Kijiji because as I said, Kijiji people are vicious and they love this stuff. But here's the problem when we speak of the pursuit of happiness. Everyone has a different measure for what makes them happy. And that's why real conversations about wealth and satisfaction and happiness have to somehow reach behind the figures and into our perceptions of the world. In fact, there's actually really good research that shows that wealth does not make you happy past a certain point. Now, it does up to a certain point. Uh, Unfortunately, that point is the equivalent of about $55,000 a year in Calgary, uh, which is about what it takes to reliably access housing and food and healthcare and mobility and recreation here in the city. I fully recognize that not everyone has access to that, which is what we talked about last week, but the point is money doesn't actually do what we think it does. It can provide you access to the basics and a little bit more, and the basics and a bit more really do make you happy, 
But beyond that, there doesn't seem to be much to your happiness except your perception. In fact, happiness researchers at the Happiness Institute in Palo Alto, California, which really is a real thing, and yes, it really is, of course, in California, they released a study a few years ago that suggested the single most significant barrier to happiness for most people is the preponderance of choice. We call this FOMO, right? Fear of missing out. But there's a point where wealth gives you access to what you want, and that's good, and it's healthy, and it makes you happy. But then wealth hits a tipping point where it gives you access to more than you want and more than you can handle, and it actually starts to work against you. When I can have a good thing, that's great. When I can have 10 good things, but I only have the time and the energy to choose one of them, that's stressful. And what happens is, according to happiness researchers, a lot of our energy that we would normally invest in enjoying that good thing gets expended on deciding on what good thing to enjoy, which diminishes our enjoyment, which makes us think we chose poorly, which makes us anxious about the other options that we're missing out on because we didn't choose them. And look, I'm not telling you to feel bad for the wealthy, all these terrible choices they have to make. When I win the lottery, you can feel bad for me then. Also, don't play the lottery. But what I'm saying is that this relationship between wealth and happiness is not the straight line we imagine it to be. And this is why the ancients talked not about the pursuit of happiness, but instead about the good life. And this was based on a Greek word, eudaimonia, which often gets translated as happiness, but is probably something more like blessing or flourishing or simply the good life. And there were all kinds of attempts to explain this throughout philosophical history. Now, Aristotle and Plato thought it was tied up in virtue. The Epicureans thought it was tied up in hedonism, a sort of eat, drink, and die, be merry, for tomorrow we die, that kind of an attitude. Now, the Stoics thought it was all about ethics and knowing about what to do in any given moment, but all of these things in these philosophical schools seem to understand that happiness and flourishing eudaimonia was more than just our external circumstances. Those matter, of course they do, but real happiness is rooted somewhere deeper in us, which is exactly what our friends at the Happiness Research Institute in Palo Alto, California have been trying to tell us. And it's also what Jesus seems to be talking about in the passage I wanna look at today. Now, we're gonna head to Matthew 6 to end this series. And this is part of a larger section known as the Sermon on the Mount. We're gonna come back to that section in the fall, so be ready to retread some material in a few months. But we're gonna start today in verse 19, where Jesus says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But instead, store up for yourself treasures in heaven, Where moths and vermin do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is there, your heart will also be. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? 
No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. It's Matthew 6, 19 to 24. Now, what I want to focus on today eventually is that middle section about our eyes and light. Because I think Jesus is saying some really interesting things there. But we need to talk about the whole section. Because I'll spoil it a bit here. I think he's actually saying the same thing three times in this passage. Store up treasures in heaven. The eye is the lamp of the body. You cannot serve two masters. Each of these are about how wealth can distract us from what is really good in our lives and what is meant for our flourishing. But let's begin at the beginning. Jesus says this, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin and thieves can get it. And as I am wont to do at times, I'm gonna pick on the NIV translation here for a moment because as much as I do appreciate the NIV overall, I still think this is the best overall translation that's out there. They've made an interesting choice here with this word vermin. Now, what they're talking about here are rats. And that is certainly part of what Jesus has in mind, but he doesn't actually say rats. What he says is brosis. Now, brosis is the Greek word for the act of consumption. And given that he's talking about the act of consumption and moths, it's pretty reasonable to assume that he means vermin, which he does, sort of. Because rats would have been one of, if not, the most common in a series of threats that would fall under the category of brosis. But, Just as equally, this could be decay, it could be rotting, it could be rust. And in fact, the English Standard Version, they've gone with rust in their translation, and I think that might be better, because it seems to me that Jesus is speaking more comprehensively here. Uh, The threat isn't just rats or vermin, it's not even just rust, it's the fact that rust happens. It's the fact that things decay, that things break down, that things fall apart. It's the idea that things get consumed. The idea is that any time you put too much trust in something that's vulnerable to being consumed, that's always gonna be precarious. And I think he's building a bit of an argument here. He talks about things in jeopardy of decay. He talks about treasure that's vulnerable to moths and mother nature. He talks about wealth that's at risk to thieves and bad intentions. And this actually goes all the way back to Martin Luther, who first noticed this and he wrote that the great idle mammon has appointed three trustees to remind us of the temporality of our possessions. Now, that word mammon comes from the last part where we read today and Jesus says you cannot serve both God and money. The Greek word there is mammon, which is money in a sense, but more wealth in a complete sense and really the worship of wealth in a full sense. So Luther read this section and realized that there were a fact that wealth can be consumed, that it can be eaten away, that it can be stolen from us. All of this should be enough to remind us not to worship it. 
And in fact, the very vulnerability of wealth is what ensures that once you start worshiping it, you have to keep worshiping it, and that's incompatible with statements like Jesus is Lord. And all that kind of makes sense to me, right? Wealth is great, it can do a lot of good, it can create access and opportunity, just like the wealthy landowner who represented the kingdom of God last week. As long as we remember what it's for, we don't make it a virtue in itself, wealth is good, except, what about this section in the middle? Because Jesus starts by talking about wealth that can be used up and stolen, He ends about talking about wealth that can be positioned against God when it supplants God. Then in the middle, he takes this weird detour into eyes and bodies and lamps and health. And we can be honest here, this seems a little off topic, doesn't it? Well, I already gave away the game here. I told you I think it's all related, so we need to go back and look a little closer. Verse 22 and 23 say this, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. If your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is dark, how great is that darkness? And if you were just to pull that section out of its context, it might sound here like Jesus is talking about things you want or you watch. I've heard this used to suggest that good Christians don't watch bad movies, or they don't listen to rock and roll, and that might be true, rock and roll is dead, we all know that, at least until Pearl Jam releases a new album, it's coming, don't worry, hang on guys, but that would be a very weird topic to address in the middle of two sections that are very clearly about wealth. What we're missing here is that we don't speak the language, or more accurately, we don't speak the languages. You see, biblical translation is a really tricky game. Not only are you translating one language with a different structure and grammar and syntax into another, but in the case of Jesus, you are very likely taking a Greek translation of an Aramaic sermon that was dependent on Hebrew sayings and you're turning that into English. And here in the Greek, What we have literally is a sincere eye and a wicked eye. And if you're a Greek speaker, what you would take from that is a healthy eye and a diseased eye, just like the NIV has translated it. But the problem is that Jesus is almost not certainly speaking Greek. He was likely speaking Aramaic when he gave the sermon, but just to complicate things a little bit more, what he's using here is a Hebraism. And a Hebraism is what we call a Hebrew idiom. And the difficulty with idioms is that they are very hard to translate because they don't mean what they are literally saying. So, if I was to say a dime a dozen, you would know what I mean. But you know that I don't actually mean anything to do with dimes or dozens, right? So side note here, when you hear someone talking about translation and they really want a word for word or a literal translation of the Bible, this is the problem. Word for word will have you talking about dimes and dozens instead of what Jesus is really trying to get at. And what he's getting at here is wealth. You see, in Hebrew, an ayin tov, or a good eye, 
and an eye in Ra, or an evil eye, these were idioms for generous or greedy people. So here's some examples. Proverbs 22.9, the generous will themselves be blessed for they share their food with the poor. Or more literally, what it says in Hebrew is a good eye is blessed because he gives his food to the poor. Eye and tov. Now, flip a page to Proverbs 23 and we find, do not eat the food of a begrudging host, do not crave his delicacies, or again, more literally, the Hebrew says, do not eat food from an evil eye, eye and raw. Do not save, or do not desire his savory foods. Notice here, that in both of these examples, in the Hebrew, good eye and evil eye, they're not even adjectives to describe someone, they just replace the noun in the sentence. That's because, just like in our English example, dime a dozen, everyone knows exactly what the idiom means when they speak Hebrew. So in Hebrew, a good eye means a generous person, an evil eye means a stingy person, but in Greek, good eye becomes sincere eye, and evil eye becomes diseased eye, and in English, that becomes healthy eye and unhealthy eye. And that's fine, translation is tricky, we get it, but it also pretty dramatically reshapes what Jesus is talking about. And I would argue that knowing the background actually makes it a lot more coherent. Jesus says, don't invest yourself in what can rot or rust or be stolen from you. Instead, invest in something more true. Because your eyes are really the key and your outlook on the world is what's most important. If you're generous, everything in you will be full of light. If you're stingy and greeting, everything goes dark. So here's the hard truth. You will serve something, but you can't serve two somethings. So choose wisely, child. And all of a sudden, this sort of strange passage where Jesus seems to be bouncing around without much discipline really starts to come into focus now. And actually for me, it's that middle section that's the most fascinating of anything, at least for our discussion in this series, because Jesus takes this Hebrew idiom that most of his audience would have been entirely familiar with, and he starts to play with it in some really surprising ways here. He starts by saying that the eye is the lamp of the body. And for a Hebrew audience, that would immediately evoke the memory of Psalm 119. Your word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. Then he brings in ayin tov, ayin ra, these idioms from the Proverbs, and he says that generosity is what fills you with light. And greed leaves you stranded in the dark, and that choice, whether you know it or not, is actually what will end up guiding your path through life. In other words, What Jesus seems to be saying here is that in the same way the law once led our steps, may generosity be what guides us now. And that is a very big deal. And don't misunderstand me, I'm not suggesting that generosity can replace God. In the very next line Jesus says, we will have to choose who we serve. So choose well and serve God. But what Jesus seems to be saying here is that the law finds its climax in our generosity. As he says in another passage, I have come not to abolish the law, but to complete, 
to fill up, to fulfill the law. And it's as if the word of God meant to guide our path in the world, it finds its fulfillment when we actually become generous and graceful in the world the way that God is. If we go back two weeks ago to the Ten Commandments, this encapsulation of the law that we started this series with, this promise that's extended to us that if we could just follow the way offered to us by the divine, we might actually find ourselves free from the coveting that damages us. If that was always the promise, and if Jesus was always the fulfillment, then perhaps generosity was always the lamp that was intended to lead us into the life that we were intended for. What if the antidote for greed and the unhappiness of going through life always wanting more was always meant to be generosity? Look, I'm not talking about salvation here. I'm not talking about getting into heaven. I'm not talking about the grace that welcomes you into the heart of God. I'm talking about the life that you were meant for right now. The one that all of us find ourselves chasing. The one that we think more wealth will bring to us. I'm talking about the good life that Jesus says only exists on the other side of a good eye. Because here's the truth, when you are generous and when you share what you have, when you open your story to another, when you extend yourself beyond yourself. And yes, even when you give to your church, your community or those in need near you, none of this was ever meant to be your obligation or your duty. It was always meant to be your investment into life that you were meant for. And it's not because of any of these weird, broken theologies that tell us we will get it all back and more. Here's the clue, you won't. It's because all of your wealth and your resources and your passion and your compassion, all of this was meant to be shared all along. And this is where your happiness is buried. So may you store up all that you've been given by investing it wherever it is most needed. May generosity become what lights your path in the world. And may your light be filled, or may your life be filled with light because of it. May you learn to pursue the good life. Not shortcuts in happiness, but the good life with everything that you have been gifted your resources, your money, your compassion, your care, your empathy, your passion, your creativity, your willingness to listen to someone's story. May all of it be invested in those who need it. And may you find happiness as you do. Let's pray. God, for all the ways that we have lost sight of the good life, And we have wondered about maybe acquiring more that this would get us to where we want to go. Where we have allowed covetiveness, desire, want to guide our path in the world. Might you invade our imagination so that things could be flipped and it would become a good eye, a generous life 
that would be the lamp that would guide us through life. May we walk the path of sharing what we have, everything that we have, not just the wealth that sits in our bank account, but all of the wealth we have been given. A shoulder to cry on, creativity, compassion, empathy. May we share it with whoever needs it generously, trusting that this is the path that will lead us back to you. God, we trust that your grace has already found us, that you have already invaded our lives and changed us for the better. But now, God, as we follow your footsteps, and we are gracious and generous as you are, may this lead us into happiness that extends deeper than the moment, but grounds us in a contentment found in the life we were meant for. God, may each of us be generous as you are. In the strong name of the risen Christ, we pray. Amen.